Let us join together and pray. Lord, I thank you once again for this day, this third Sunday of Advent. We're getting so close to the celebration of your incarnation, and yet we know you have so much for us in this passage through faithful Isaiah. And I ask, Lord, that you would speak new truths with grace into our hearts, that we might know you and follow you all the days of our lives and flourish in that reality. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You know, I, I speak about my upbringing, uh, and my kids can hardly believe it. Um, my best friend growing up, I've known him since I was three. His name's Ricky Calvert. He didn't go by Ricky, much like DT doesn't go by DT anymore, all right? Um, but you can call him DT. Um, Ricky, Rick Calvert, as he's known now, we were peas in a pod. Uh, he was Batman, I was Robin. I played Batman, he was Robin. We played baseball together, we played all sports together, and, and all throughout high school, we hung out together. We got in trouble together. Everything we did together. He's my best friend. We went to Truro together, um, and I love him to this day. We, we have a lot of good memories and a lot of mistakes that we share that God has personally redeemed. And when we turned 16, we went to our parents and we said, Hey, Mom, Dad, me and Ricky are going to go camping in the GW National Forest. Is that okay? We're gonna, just going to go fishing? And they said, Sure. It was a different world. So at 16 years old, we hop in my 1971 Mercury Capri, loaded up with a bunch of uh, just camping gear and fishing rods, and we drove to, to Front Royal, Virginia. Those of you might remember him, Harry Geesland grew up in Front Royal. And so we went to State Road 340 down a little bit where you paid 340 outfitters, I can't even remember what it was, about five bucks, and they would take you up river and drop you off in a rented canoe where you could float down seven miles back to the outfitters. And I kid you not, we, catch, we caught a cooler of brim, smallmouth bass, catfish. If it was big enough to keep, we kept it. Because we got back to the campsite, we cleaned the fish, and we had a, a, a case full of coke, and it was just glorious. And we were, we're, you know, it's nighttime in July, August, baseball season's over, we're getting ready for football. And we look at one another and goes, we belong here. This is home. These people get us. This is phenomenal, isn't it? And we, and we did that in 1978, 79, 80, 81, 82, 83, and the last year before I got married, the summer of 84, we did it. We were students at George Mason together, and, and after he graduated, he just took off to University of New Mexico, where he's been ever since. And I share that with you because we felt so home there. And every time I go to that area of Virginia, you know I get nostalgic, and I talk about it, and I know it's obnoxious. I don't care. It's phenomenal. You're home. Here's what Isaiah is trying to say in a little different way as we live in God's kingdom already, yet not fully realized. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 35. We've been studying this book all month because it's filled with prophecies about a future, future messianic age 
under the rule of a future messianic king who will make all things right. Isaiah, as we remember in chapter 1, verse 1, prophesied in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. His call to ministry came in the year that Uzziah died in Isaiah chapter 6. That's about 740 B.C. And he lived long enough, we know, to record the death of King Sennacherib, which is, we know, which is Isaiah 37, 38, which we know is about 681 B.C. So we know he lived at least that long. Long career where he saw the northern kingdom, Israel, fall to the Assyrian Empire. Judah was still hanging in there, and he was from Judah. So he's prophesying about Israel from Judah. And so because Christians believe that the Messianic king was Jesus, who was born at Christmas, and what we've been doing the entire month of December is look at some of these prophecies because the Messiah in the book of Jesus, in the book of Isaiah, is Jesus because it helps us grasp the richness of Christmas, what it means, and who it truly was who was born in a manger. So we've looked each week in Isaiah over the past two weeks, and today we get to the third passage because we get a different take, a different view of Christmas. And this morning's theme is different from the peaceable kingdom of last week. And it's actually essential for us to understand because if you don't understand exile and home and homecoming, you miss the whole point of Christmas. So if you're visiting with us, you'll notice it's in the back of your bulletin. And I want you to keep in mind, as, as you always read Isaiah, already, not yet. Okay. All right, so the first thing we recognize in this passage is that there will be a new creation, somewhat already, but not yet fully realized. Verses 1 and 2. The wilderness and dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like a crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of of our God. When it says the desert and parched land, the wilderness will blossom, it means there won't be any deserts anymore. We're talking about real change and a renewal of the world that we physically live in. The images of Lebanon and Carmel and Sharon. Lebanon is a place of great fertility. Uh, Sharon is a great a place of absolutely beautiful geography. And Carmel represents orderliness. Everything's just beautifully ordered in that area. So what Isaiah is saying is that when the glory of the Lord shows up, the soil will be perfectly fertile. When the Lord shows up, the geography will be absolutely stunningly beautiful. When the Lord shows up, there won't be any deserts anymore. We'll have a renewed world like we looked at last week in Isaiah 11 where the lion will lay down with the lamb. So we're talking here about a future renewed world. Joy pervades this chapter, my friends, because salvation is not just when the individual believer stops being bad. 
Salvation is when we delight in this majesty and glory of the Lord and what he's doing in us now, and it's going to get better in the future. What must he be if the mere sight of him transforms us from death into life? Think about that. See, it's so foolish to hold God at arm's length when you see this glory here. He himself is to be the desire of our hearts. And he wants you to see his glory. He wants you to see it now by faith already. And yet, when we get to this time, face to face. So, how does God show himself to us now? In the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news of Jesus. Paul writes about it in this way. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6. For God who said that light shine of the darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. As the Holy Spirit makes him real to us through his word, how Christ is an overflowing fountain to imperfect people like us. Imperfection equals sinner. (laughs) How Jesus is our wealth. How Jesus is our joy. Jesus is our happiness. How Christ's righteousness covers all our guilt. How he is the power to conquer all my sin, to purify me and wash me clean, not because of anything I've done, because all of what Christ has done. Such a person sees in Christ a fullness to satisfy them forever. And the believing heart thrives in this new awareness that we are new creatures in Christ. As Paul says, 2 Corinthians uh, 417 therefore if anyone is in christ he's a new creation the old has passed away behold the new has come and you might be saying to yourself i don't feel very new i know get over it you are that's the way he sees you it's not how we feel about it that's what the cross is all about that's what coming to the lord's table is all about this is how much he loves you that's the already That's the good news, and it's going to be better. And so we as God's people should help one another to seek him, to go after him hard, and to live as confident people because of his promises. And that brings us to our second point. So we're new creatures in Christ now, and it will be better in the new creation where we're given a call to encourage one another. Verses 3 and 4. Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. You know, this is saying that the reason this is going to happen is because God will come to earth. You might be thinking, well, isn't God already here? Isn't Isn't he already present? Yes, he is. But track with me now. He's invisibly present in this kingdom right now. But he's 
also resistibly present. That's to say he's present in the world, but it's possible to resist him. You can disobey him. You can choose to follow him your way and not his way. And plenty of people do. This is talking about a day in which God will be visibly present and irresistibly present. We will totally desire to follow him on that day. We will be unable to sin. Right? Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are anxious, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God is coming. He will rescue you. See, encouragement is one of the most important ways God spreads his goodness in our direction. As we encourage one another. And he wants us to encourage one another to look for a new blessing from God. If what we've experienced thus far is all can we be expecting, that would be kind of a bummer. You know, if, if, if my knowledge and growth in the Lord stopped with what I know today, that's pretty demoralizing. But God's greatness is what puts the thrill into life. This is more for us for, in Jesus Christ than we have yet apprehended, always. And it's experienced as we learn, we grow, and we serve together as God's people. Following Jesus, we're never at a dead end. We're always at the threshold of discovering something new. Isaiah is calling us to create that atmosphere among us of expectancy. You know, I know some of you, you know, might have had to be dragged to be here. But some of you came in here with great expectation. God will speak today. Yes, he will. He always does. As we're faithful to his word together, encouraging one another. And therefore... Have no fear. Right? Faith is the opposite of fear. Okay? Faith is the opposite of anxiety. When we trust in Jesus, have no fear. You know? Behold, your God has come. And it's going to get even better in this new creation he just talked about. Right? So we walk together with Christ, being hospitable. Sticking my neck out there in the office if I have to. Just to join God at the work he's doing. As we gossip the gospel and we invite people Christmas Eve. Yeah, you'll get rejected. Welcome to the club. You know, it's all right. God will be with us. He will come and save you. So that's the second point. And as we have this new creation and we live in the reality of this encouragement, we experience the fullness of salvation. That's the third point. We live in the experience of the fullness of salvation. Verse 5 and 6. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like the deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Because this is what God does. (laughs) He's a... He's, it's his professional business to make spiritual cripples into people who change the world. Because what do we contribute to this outcome? You know, uh, blindness, deafness, lameness, si- silence. 
Well, that's the exile of Israel that Isaiah is beginning to see in the north. So what does God contribute to this salvation experience? Sight, sound, agility, and a new song to sing. We'll sing it at the end of our service today. Charles Wesley's Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing refers to Isaiah 35 when he writes, Hear him, ye deaf, his praise ye dumb, your loosened tongues employ. Ye blind, behold, your Savior comes, and leap, ye lame, for joy. Because that's what God does. It's his professional business, like I said, to make spiritual cripples into world changers. And his motivating power is joy. Absolute joy. Not only will he renew you if you will trust him fully, he also promises a new life-enriching environment in the second half of verse 6. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. He said we should never give up following Christ, ever. Because God will provide for us what we need at the time, no matter what happens to us. And one day there will be streams. One day there will be the burning sand which shall become a pool and thirsty ground springs of water. Scholar Isaiah scholar John Oswald says it this way, the way of man is to make inhabited land uninhabitable, but the way of God is to take the barren and make it abundant. In other words, we, we tend to spoil what God renews. God does it through the Holy Spirit breaking forth into our hearts with saving, satisfying fullness as we embrace him. And in fact, as Advent shows us, one day it will be completely renewed. So today we can live so that our identity is totally who you are in Christ. There's no perfect people here. We walk together following him with the gifts and talents, one body together in this community. We don't have to post on Instagram a false self or Twitter images which I want to portray to people. Did you know that like 85% of the people who sign up for Match.com lie on their profile? They lie. Wouldn't you be ticked? I'm so glad I'm married. Uh, you, know, you know, you'd be ticked. Hey, that's not your picture. Um, you know, um, Friends, we don't have to hide anything. Those who have been saved by faith will begin to live increasing conformity with to God's will, not by their own strength, but because what God has been done in them through the regeneration and indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They're God's work for God's glory, and they will not be lost because God will not lose them. Why? Final point. Because it's on his highway, verses 8 through 10. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the, on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. Isaiah is literally talking about a causeway, a raised causeway that's visible. 
And God makes it so obvious for them that even fools can't miss it. <laughs> it's a highway of holiness. And we know in Christ we're made holy. You might say, I don't feel holy. Get over it. In Christ you are. That's how Jesus sees you. And he paved a beautiful asphalt for you to walk on at your pace. Take your time. Go with him for his glory. And God makes it so obvious that even fools can find it, such as me. But the unclean, however intelligent they are, however beautiful they are, We'll find no place there because the way into this new order that God is creating is God's holiness. And you can't have that God's holiness without trusting in Christ. Nor will any ravenous beast wander along at verse 9. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. Think of some rats scurrying off a ship that just comes into port, spreading their fleas and infectious diseases to the port city. You know, in our present world, we've got to hold our breath. We have to use hand sanitizer. We have to get inoculations. We have to lock our doors. But God has a better world for the redeemed, his people the people that he has taken on as his personal responsibility. He has taken you on as his personal responsibility. That's what it means to be redeemed. Christ paid that price for you. You get in free. That's the deal. So where does he get you? Look at verse 10. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. The ESV reads, they shall obtain gladness and joy, but I think the NIV renders the Hebrews and Isaiah's intent better. I, NIV translates this, and gladness and joy will overtake them. The verb in Hebrew carries this force in Deuteronomy 28.2, where the blessings of God overtake or overwhelm his people you ever been overwhelmed by somebody's generosity to you out of sheer grace you get that's just a foretaste of god's grace to you you know and isaiah is saying that intense joy will come over us and all our sadness will flee forever you know, all our lives, we've just wanted to be happy. But all our lives, something has always ruined it, hadn't it? God is saying, trust me enough. Follow me in my son, Jesus Christ, and I will bring you home. I will bring you home singing. It says that. Those of you who don't sing, <laughs> I can't wait. You're going to sing. <laughs> And you're going to sound awesome. It's going to be great. I will overwhelm you with a joy unbroken and unbreakable. And your sighing and your sorrow will run for the hills. You see, there are some that are content with their self-importance. Their individualism. 
their consumerism and their self, their pettiness of this present age. And they fill their stomachs, they're full, and their bank accounts are full, and they're successful, and their egos are full with all the salvations of this world, and they will discover forever how empty such fullness really is. Then there are those whose hearts yearn for something more. They long for God's salvation, and they will receive it not because they deserve it, but because Jesus lived and died for them, and they trust that work. And through the pursuit of their joy in Jesus Christ, and though that pursuit of following Jesus Christ may cost them everything here in this world, they don't mind. They gladly leave it behind and press on toward a joy that will never end because it's home. I belong here. These people get me. Two kinds of people. Two destinations. What are you becoming? If you insist on making anything more important than God in your life, emotionally, intellectually, and in every way, keeping God at arm's length, you're not home, you're homeless. It's like living in a park in the wintertime. That's destructive. You're always wandering, never home, always winter, never Christmas. And what Isaiah has been teaching us this Advent as we approach Christmas a week and a half away means this great God, Jesus Christ, became homeless so that he could make this world a home. And at the very end of time, he will be home. It will be his home. And the new heavens and the new earth, the lion lying down with the lamb, the desert and the parched land will be glad, the wilderness will rejoice and blossom. And if you're the redeemed... We'll walk on that highway prepared just for you. And we'll say like Jewel the Unicorn in the last battle said, I'm home at last. I belong here. This is the land that I've been longing for all my life and I never knew it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the promise of the homecoming that is there in Isaiah at Christmas time. We thank you so much that you were willing to go to infinite lengths that you did in order to bring us into our, your family and to bring us home. We pray for humility, to care for the needs of people around us, where we live, where we work, where we play, and for a fearless identification of our faith for our, a commitment to you to, to resetting our priorities alongside your priorities so that our relationship with you and for your honor and glory would become the most important thing in our lives. Lord, all these things will come to pass if we take how seriously your son was born and what it means that he was given to us at Christmas. And I pray, Lord, that you would do this work in our hearts for your honor and glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.